Well, happy Easter. It is great to see you all. It's very exciting to see people here today from literally all over the world. And uh, it's also good to welcome um, my own lovely mum, who's here today. Um, There are other visitors here. So welcome to you all. It is a huge privilege um, to share something with you on Easter Sunday of all the Sundays in the year. Uh, What a privilege to be able to come and share some thoughts with you. We are today finishing a short three-week series. Um, We did these leaflets at the start, entitled The King Who Died. Um, We've spent the last couple of weeks reflecting a little on the Easter story. And this afternoon I want to uh, think with you about the fact that the King Who Died changes everything. Uh, The king who died changes everything. Uh, One of my friends put a quote on Facebook this morning. Um, This quote, I believe, is attributed to C.S. Lewis, who wrote the the Narnia Chronicles. You'll have heard of C.S. Lewis. I I, I haven't checked whether this quote was really his, so I'm relying on my friend. Uh, Maybe he made it up and pretended it was from C.S. Lewis, I don't know, but he attributed it to C.S. Lewis. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Does that make sense to you? Wow, we've got all sorts going <laughs> Children are very important. Let me read that again, in case you were distracted. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Christianity can never be a little bit important. It is either everything or nothing. And of course, the claim that the king who died on Good Friday rose from the dead on Easter Sunday is absolutely central. It is the resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. In the first century, there were many men who claimed to be the Messiah. And in almost every case, the messianic leader was killed somehow. And then everybody basically went home and carried on with their lives. In fact, in the Bible, there was a wise politician called Gamaliel who reminded a court of this very fact when they were deciding how to punish the first Christians who were preaching the resurrection. This is what it says in Acts chapter 5. Some time ago, this is the man in the court. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. They'll go the same way as all the rest, in other words. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. Very interesting that he refers to two men by name, who claimed to be messiahs, were killed, and everybody just went home. But of all of these messianic movements that came and went, only one of them did not only not collapse, but it exploded to such a degree and spread so fast that within 300 years it had dominated the Roman Empire itself. What was it that made Christianity different to the groups of Thudas or Judas the Galilean or any other of a number of messianic claimants 
The compelling difference is found in what happened after Jesus was killed. The explanation for the explosion of Christianity across the Mediterranean and beyond is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What what I'd like to do with you this afternoon is really simple. I'd like to spend some time just looking mainly from the verses that Hannah read to us at four key evidences for the resurrection. But I think the other question, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this, hopefully we'll be able to do it quick enough. I always have too much to say. This is Easter Sunday, I've got so much I want to say. What, what we'll try and do secondly is, I, I, this is a relevant question. How on earth is this relevant to me, living in Rotherham in 2015? How, how, how does this impact my life now, today? It's great to talk about this 2,000 years ago, but what difference? So what? So four evidences, first of all, for the resurrection, and then we'll think about three ways that the resurrection should impact our lives today. So here's, uh, well, I don't, I don't know if these are all four evidences, but you'll get the gist. Evidences for the resurrection. Number one, nobody expected it. Nobody expected it. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus is telling his followers constantly, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. Constantly, the Gospel writers tell us they had no clue what he was talking about. And even when it happened, they didn't seem to grasp the significance of what had happened. In a sense, after Jesus was killed, everybody did go home. This was just another case of hopes being raised and then cruelly dashed. In Luke's Gospel, there are two friends of Jesus, possibly, literally going home. They were walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And they were literally walking along the road with a sense of, it's over. It's over. It's finished. And a stranger comes alongside them and asks them, what are you talking about as you're walking along the road? They stood still, Luke tells us, their faces downcast, and one of them replies, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. And here's the phrase, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but it's finished. He's gone. They killed him. It's not fair. It's over. Nobody expected it. In the passage we read, just look with me, it'd be great if you could keep your finger in John chapter 20 because we're going to refer to these verses a few times. In John chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus' tomb. Luke's Gospel tells us that these women, or a group of women, including Mary Magdalene, spent the Saturday preparing spices and perfumes, presumably to lay with Jesus' dead corpse. She's not expecting anything. She's going to pay her respects and to embalm or to put spices on her dear departed Lord. And even when she finds the tomb empty, she's upset and confused and thinks that some unknown person has stolen the body and put her beloved Jesus somewhere else. She comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. That's John, by the way, who's writing this gospel. 
he's so humble he doesn't seem to use his own name um, she says to them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him it doesn't occur to her at all even at this point when the tomb, there's no body there it doesn't occur to her that he's risen and where are the men she goes to Simon Peter and to John we'll, we'll get to the men in a minute but look with me at verse 19 just after what Hannah read to us on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews the men were terrified their Lord is dead and they're expecting the worst we'll, we'll, they've killed him we'll be next someone lock the door and be quiet stop arguing we don't want anyone to know where we are they're terrified they are not expecting anything then you've got the case of Thomas when Jesus does appear to the others for some reason John doesn't tell us why Thomas isn't there and even when the others tell him we've seen the Lord he's like no way you're all mad and he, John, Thomas says I will not believe it unless I see it with my own eyes unless I can put my finger into the holes where the nails were I will not believe it I, I think one of the compelling things about this narrative is that they find it as hard as we do they're not expecting a resurrection and even when they're confronted with the resurrection they are very slow to grasp what has happened it seems to me like they behave like any of us would behave in the face of such an extraordinary thing that happens here I, I, I think John's narrative has a ring of authenticity about it it doesn't read like an embellished legend in fact some of these men Peter and John went on to become leaders in the early church and as, as we'll see and yet here they portrayed themselves as bumbling cowards if you were trying to make this up you, you would want the people who became the leaders of this movement to look like heroes and yet here they are bumbling, stumbling slow to grasp and believe what has happened so there, there's one piece of evidence nobody expected the resurrection secondly there's no body that might seem a simple thing to say I, I, maybe if a policeman was investigating this that's the faith where's the, where's the body Mary goes to the tomb the stone has been removed from the entrance and she thinks that someone has moved the body one uh, Bible commentator tells us that the robbing of graves was a crime sufficiently common that the Roman Emperor Claudius who reigned about 10 years AD 41 to AD 54 about 10 years after Christ died he eventually ordered capital punishment to be meted out to those convicted of destroying tombs removing bodies or even displacing the ceiling stones so grave robbers were afoot enough for it to become a capital offence within 10 years of Jesus' death so I don't think Mary's sense here that maybe someone has burgled the tomb is, is, is misplaced many people have tried to suggest solutions to this uh, problem of a missing body none of them really hold water think about it for a minute if the Jewish leaders or for that matter the Romans had moved the body all they had to do when the disciples began to proclaim the resurrection was produce it here's the body there's the nail prints 
There's the big hole where they put the spear in his side. Here's the marks on his forehead where the thorns were. It wouldn't be hard to identify such a public figure. All they had to do was to produce a body and the whole movement was quite literally as dead as Jesus was. But they didn't. Some people have suggested maybe Mary went to the wrong tomb. John tells us it was early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. Maybe she should have gone to Specsavers. Maybe it was dark. She didn't have a night goggles on. Luke tells us in his gospel that the women had been there on the Friday evening and seen the place where Jesus' body was laid. But again, even if she did go to the wrong tomb, all the authorities have to do was say, wrong tomb, it was plot number 57, not 55, the body's here. Perhaps another possibility is that the disciples themselves stole the body. But the narrative itself portrays them as fearful, not confident. And we've also got to wonder, what what could their motive possibly be for such an unbelievable hoax that all of them, in the end, were later prepared to die to protect? Let's uh, go back, shall we, to John's account here. Um, Mary Magdalene runs to Simon Peter and to John and uh, verse 3 so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb there's some human elements here it seems that John is younger and he runs quicker and he gets the tomb first but he's not as brash and bold as Peter is so he gets the tomb first and he has a little peep and then Peter comes puffing and panting behind him. It's like a part run. Peter comes puffing and panting behind him. But he's more brash. And rather than peeping, he's like, get out of the way, mate. He's a nosy parker. He goes straight into the tomb to have a look. And what he sees makes no sense. Verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. That's John. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived in the tomb, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now we're thinking, if the body's been moved or stolen, who on earth would take all the strips of embalming cloth off the body and neatly fold them up and leave them on the tomb? Then, almost reluctantly, timid John goes into the tomb behind Peter and look at what he himself writes here. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. The absence of a body and the presence of the grave clothes that had been on the body made his heart leap. It is all very private. He seems to say nothing to Peter. He keeps it to himself. He even notes, in brackets here in the NIV, verse 9, he even notes that neither of them fully understood that Jesus had to rise. The light is beginning to dawn, but even at this point it's very tentative and hesitant and sensitive. Luke tells us that Peter, bending over, saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. If we stopped here, we would have a group of people now who are not expecting anything, but now have no corpse. But Don Carson, who's a Bible 
commentator, Don Carson points out, most of the early witnesses came to faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, not because they couldn't find his corpse, but because they found Christ alive. John testifies that he came to such faith before he saw Jesus and he took that step not simply because the tomb was empty but because the grave clothes were still there. He saw that and believed. Most of these early witnesses did not believe in the resurrection because there was no body. They believed in the resurrection because they met the risen Jesus. And that brings us on to a third piece of evidence here the risen Christ is not just disappeared he appears to a whole variety of different individuals as we see it seems that he appeared to Mary first I, I just want to say as a little aside here as well this too is a compelling piece of evidence in the first century even in legal terms evidence from women was not seen as positively, let's say, as evidence from men. Women were considered to be inferior, emotional, not objective. Tim Keller, an American writer, tells of a second century philosopher called Celsus, who was very antagonistic towards Christianity. He wrote a lot of things, listing arguments. Christianity is not true. And one of the things he says is that Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women and we all know that women are hysterical. That, that, that was what he wrote in the second century. Even the disciples in the narrative itself don't believe the women. Luke tells us that when the women told the man what they'd seen, Luke tells us, Luke 24 verse 11, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Even the men didn't believe their own women. They're just going off on one. No idea what they just said. This is an important point because if these writers were trying to get a spurious movement off the ground, let's say they were inventing this. They would never have chosen to introduce this news to the world via the witness of women. The, the only possible reason for women being included here is that they were there and they saw with their own eyes what happened. Even their own male friends didn't believe them. Anyway, when Peter and John leave, Mary, it seems hangs around. Verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. And as she weeps, she again goes to look inside the tomb. This time, she sees two figures sitting. I, I don't we don't know what Jesus' tomb looks like. In my mind's eye, I'm seeing some sort of stone bench that they would lay the body on. There's two figures, one where the head would have been, one where the feet would have been. And these figures gently ask Mary, why are you crying? Even now, she's still so sure that someone has taken Jesus' body away that she trots out the same line in verse 13. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. What a sad comment. I, I just don't know. She's so confused. I'm trying to work it out but I can't. Out of the corner of her eye she senses some movement. And she turns around to see another figure. It is the risen Jesus. She doesn't recognise him yet. He asked her the same question, plus another question. Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? 
I have to say, that is a quite brilliant question that we could dwell on. Why are you sad and who are you looking for? What are you looking for? Is that not a brilliant question that almost resounds down the years of history? Who is it you're looking for, Mary? Why are you so sad and disappointed? It highlights the deep hopes, really, that we all have in our hearts for something, for someone. For some solution to our brokenness. Mary is like, I just can't make any sense of it. And Jesus gently asks her, what kind of person is it that you're looking for? What kind of Messiah do you want? Are you just here to pay your respects to a dead failure? She's still looking on a practical level for a body. And she repeats her plea to Jesus, thinking that he's some kind of caretaker or the gardener. Have you moved him? You look like you could have moved him. Tell me where you've put him so I can find him. And then in one of the most poignant moments in the whole of the scripture, he simply says her name. Perhaps in the way that he always used to say it. Mary. And in that moment for Mary, it all begins to come crashing into focus. And, and what, the things that are hidden in this, ex, in this exchange. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni! Which means teacher. She's, she'd lost him. Now she's found him again. Is he going to leave again? Is this the end or is this a beginning? It seems like she wants to cling on to him. She has a million questions. And Jesus effectively says to her, don't be clingy, Mary. I'm here. It is all right. And then Jesus says to her, go and tell those backstabbing cowards that I'm coming to get them. Oh, hang on a minute. No, it doesn't say that. It, it would have been fair if he'd said that, wouldn't it? Jesus said, don't hold on to me. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm going home and one day they're going to come with me I'm going home to my father and to their father don't, don't be clingy what are you waiting for woman go tell them the good news And Mary goes again to the others to tell them the amazing truth. What is that? In verse 18, five words. She goes to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Now we know where there is no body. He has risen and I've seen him. In the rest of this chapter, Jesus appears again later this same day to the whole group. He blesses them with his peace. He shows them his scars. He begins the process of commissioning them for the task ahead. The Father sent me, now I'm sending you. They were overjoyed. Why? Verse 29. Sorry, verse 20. My eyes are getting old. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Later, he appears to Thomas, who dramatically falls down in worship. My Lord and my God, he cries. The most unyielding skeptic has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. There are two other passages in the Bible that speak of eyewitnesses. Well, there are, well, there are, there are many others, but in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days 
and spoke about the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that Jesus appeared on one occasion to more than 500 people at the same time, most of whom are still living. They didn't expect it. There was nobody. And eyewitnesses saw him. Fourthly, very quickly, how do we explain the impact that the resurrection had on this little band of friends? Perhaps the greatest evidence of all is that this group of ordinary, fearful, stumbling people were somehow transformed into leaders who in turn laid their own lives down in order to proclaim the truth of what they'd seen. They didn't expect it. There was nobody and then they saw him. The king who died changed everything. They gave their stuff away. They faced unimaginable obstacles, difficulties and sufferings. They were known for their love and their courage and their integrity. They poured out their whole lives and changed the course of human history. How do we explain the impact that these people had on human history when at the end of this day they were behind locked doors, terrified? Six weeks later, Peter's preaching and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. I said that we would ask why the impact on the followers of Jesus raises the question, doesn't it? What about the relevance of the resurrection to us? Let me close with three things. The relevance. Number one. Thought I wasn't going to come. The slide was nearly gone. Number one, their guilt was gone. One of the significant things about John's Gospel narrative is how he describes the death of Jesus. Just look back with me into chapter 19 if you're on the same page. Verse 30. They gave Jesus, Jesus is on the cross. He's been on the cross for six hours. When he had received the drink that they gave to him on a stick, with a sponge Jesus said it is finished and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit it is finished is that an unusual thing for a dying man to say my life is finished is, is that a cry of failure and desperation is that the cry of a man saying, it's over, I'm done, I'm dead? I, I want to suggest to you that that is not why Jesus cried out, it is finished. This was a cry of completion. It was a cry of victory. This is a man who has done a job finishing what he came to do. I have taken human failure, all of the darkness, all of the selfishness, all of the sin, all of the mess, all of the brokenness, and I have paid for it all with my own life. I have absorbed it. I've taken the condemnation that sin and evil deserve onto my own shoulders. The righteous anger of God 
against everything that destroys what is good has fallen on me. I've done it. It's finished. I I want to suggest to you this afternoon that the most terribly offensive thing about the cross is that it proclaims our guilt. Jesus Christ died for our sins. I want to show you another passage uh, that expresses this very idea, but let me introduce it with an illustration. At, at work, we have a chocolate box. But you don't have one of those at your work, do you? Oh, you probably do. A chocolate box. Do you know what a chocolate box is? Every Monday, a man comes to refill it. And there's a little money tin. And uh, Colin comes every Monday... Um, to empty the money tin and refill the chocolate box with chocolate and crisps and sweets. And the idea is that people can take a packet of crisps or a bar of chocolate and they count the money out and they put it in the tin. Sometimes, though, people in our office have a craving for sugar and no cash. That's a tough gig, isn't it? They want the chocolate... And they've got no cash. What do they do? I'll tell you what they do. They get a little slip of paper and they write their name on it and they put I O U 73 pounds 50. No, no, 75 pence for a Cadbury's Holder. And they put the I O U in the tin. It's, it's expensive, but Colin, you know, brings them to work. We don't have to go to a shop for them, so everyone thinks that's fair. When you're craving sugar, You have to go for it, don't you? When Colin turns up and he finds the money tin, the first thing he does, and we're all sitting there in the office, the first thing he does, he comes across an IOU. And he's he's a nervous fellow. But he has to, like, you know, excuse me, um, we're a little bit short this week. There's an IOU from Ian Jones. Who's Ian Jones? You owe me £37 for chocolate. Well, the idea of an IOU is an interesting way to think about our obligations to God. In our hearts, it seems to me that we are always intending to do what we ought to do. But we're constantly writing IOUs. Imagine if it wasn't Colin that came, but God who came and said, you know what, Ian, it's time for you to pay up on all those IOUs. Just listen to these words from the Bible. Colossians chapter 2. Jesus forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Here's the IOUs. Jesus took it away and hammered it into the cross. God, God was taking all of our IOUs and crucified Jesus. The whole list of them. Every guilt, every failure, every sin. Jesus paid all my outstanding debt. He has covered all of it. The hell that I deserve was born by him. This morning, as it happens, I had an email from a couple who are missionaries in Papua New Guinea, Paul and Susan Boothby. They've been there many years learning the language, living in a village very remote in order to share 
this message with people who live there. There's a little church there. There's only a few of them. Happy band. Lots of um, difficulties. They sent an email this morning about their Easter Sunday. Let me read to you. We cooked two kilograms of rice and made 50 rice balls. A few others bought cooked sweet potato. We had a good sing, prayer and praise time and Kunai went through the crucifixion narrative helped by Kundar and Paul. Afterwards we had a rice ball, half a sweet potato and a cup of sweet milky coffee each. And then we watched the Jesus film. I don't know if you've seen that. Some cried. Piogoi, I don't know how you say his name, used to be a tough drinking man, not to be messed with. But he could hardly watch as the soldiers mistreated his beloved Lord Jesus. He put his head down and cried at the pain given to the sinless Son of God. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, that was for our sins. It was very moving. Sometimes in films you see a person who's been in prison, don't you? Coming out of the prison. You know, the door clinks open and some guy comes strolling out with a little rucksack like Dick Whittington. Uh, he's got all his worldly belongings in a little bag and he walks out into freedom. He has served his time. The resurrection of Jesus captures that idea. He has served our time. In the resurrection, the door opens, he grabs his belongings, and he walks out free. It is finished. Guilt has gone. The debt is paid. Forgiveness can be ours. It is not cheap, but it is real. Oh man, let me just wait so I'm going to get carried away. Secondly, there's only three, so this is the second one. Their lives, <laughs> preach it, brother. Their lives were redirected. There are two things that strike me about the disciple called Peter. One is that when Jesus in the Gospels tried to tell them that he was going to die one day, Peter, in his wisdom, takes Jesus to one side and says, "Can I have a quiet word? This is never going to happen to you." He, he, he has like the I don't know, the confidence to rebuke Jesus and tell him off. You're, you're never going to die. The second thing that strikes about Peter is that after the crucifixion, what does Peter do in chapter 21? He says to his friends, I'm going fishing. <laughs> We've had three years of this. It's all I know. It's over. I'm going fishing. And they all go fishing. They don't catch anything until the next day when Jesus comes. But those two things strike me about Peter he did not want Jesus to go to the cross and after the cross he so didn't understand it that he wanted to go back to what he was doing before when Jesus appears to them in, the, in that locked room John tells us that Jesus showed them his scars verse 20 he showed them his hands and his side Here's the thought. The scars that they thought had ruined everything were the very scars that had saved their lives. Before all this, they thought they were on a presidential campaign. They'd have had a bus if it was nowadays. We're going into Jerusalem. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to smash the Romans. We're going to be in his cabinet. It's going to be fantastic. What does he go and do? Get himself killed. The, the scars of Jesus have ruined everything. It's over. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. He's in the tomb now. What a waste of three years that's been. All the things they had hoped for came crashing down around their ears. But in the end, the very scars that they thought had smashed everything were the very scars that had saved their lives. 
the cross that Peter had tried to avoid and even prevent. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was trying to chop someone's ear off. He, he wanted to fight. The cross that they had tried to avoid actually became their greatest treasure. The resurrection changes everything. Their guilt is gone and their whole lives are now redirected. Do you know, I I wonder whether we could say, even today, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who avoid the cross and there are those who love and cherish the cross. They'd spent three years thinking, we're building up to a dream. And Jesus goes and gets himself killed. The resurrection changes everything. They now have a new purpose entirely. Their whole purpose in life is now to go and preach this amazing message of forgiveness. What is more, it changes their whole approach to suffering. Because they now have a saviour who knows what suffering feels like and who has redeemed it. There's a new point to life for them even in a broken world. Things are suddenly worth it because he is worth it. I I wanted to say to you this afternoon, when anyone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, There is a sense in which their own plans have to die and be replaced by his greater plans. Jesus is not a robber who wants to deprive us. He is a saviour who wants to give us life. And his resurrection, in a sense, is a redirection It takes our eyes off what we think is important and onto what he thinks is important. These dear disciples here lost something, but they gained Christ forever. Is that a trade worth making? Lastly, hope was born. And we'll close with this. The great thing about Christianity is that it is grounded in earthly realities. The fact of the resurrection points to the body being important. Second century Gnostics, we talked about them before, but they, they believe that the body wasn't important. It's all about the spirit world. Having a pesky body, it traps you. Depending on your personality, some people abused their body because they thought it was evil. Other people indulged the body because they thought it doesn't matter anyway, you might as well enjoy it. What counted was the body was bad, the spirit realm is important. The resurrection shows that this physical world matters, it is good though broken the resurrection is not just about immortality Jesus wasn't a ghost the gospel writers tell us that he ate meals with them he was the same and yet different it is about physicality Jesus has a new and eternal body the resurrection is not just an inspiring story but is rock solidly relevant The reason this brings hope, I want to suggest, is because it tells us that this broken world is not all there is. Do you know why we get anxious? The reason we're so afraid of suffering, pain, the reason we get so possessive about our stuff is because we live as if this is all there is. But in Christ, This broken world has been redeemed and will one day be recreated 
and his resurrection is the first fruit of a different kind of harvest. Ironically, these disciples were not escapists. They didn't believe in Jesus because they couldn't cope with real life. They, They weren't trying to escape from this world. They were of the most use here on earth because they had a perspective on a glory that was still yet to come. It's so far from escapism. They were willing to give their stuff away. They were willing to be put into prison. Why? Because they knew that there's more to life than just the here and now. Let me conclude. One of the saddest things about our modern culture is that it has no story. There's no story anymore. We want everything to be true and yet nothing to be true. People in our communities long for love, forgiveness, for relationship, for some kind of purpose. And all the while, the fact of the resurrection towers above human, human history as the ultimate story. It is honest enough to face the reality of life in this broken world and yet powerful enough to deal with guilt, give solid purpose and give birth to a real and lasting hope. We've conducted all of our reflections in the Gospel of John and at the end of chapter 20 John tells us why he writes all this stuff. Just look with me at verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name what John is doing what I'm doing is inviting a response. What John aims to do is to evoke faith in the hearts of his readers. What John's saying is, will you come and see what we've seen and put your confidence and faith in him? The king who died, you can trust him, you can treasure him, and by his resurrection, the king who died changes everything. Oh, man.